Wait, did I tell you about the uh, guy I met recently? This really cute guy came into Phil's and was, like, studying this, like, medical textbook, and we were chatting. He's studying liver pathology, and we were talking about it. And, like, I caught him, like, looking at me a bunch. So, like, I literally, I slipped in my number, like, on a napkin. Like, I wrote it down, and I just handed it to him. And then I went back to work because we, we were really busy. So, I, we stopped talking, and then, like, as I was clearing tables, I, like, gave him my number on a napkin. And he texted me, and he was like, hey, Catherine, like, it was good talking to you. Like, it was really brave of you to give me your number, and I, like, admire your courage. And he was like, but I don't think it's going to work out because I'm Orthodox Jewish. <laughs> and I was like, damn, this is just my luck. But we're actually going to, I was like, oh, like, maybe you're right. I don't think we'd be very compatible. Not, And I was like, nothing against Judaism specifically, but, like, I'm, like, best described as Christian by proxy. So <laughs> uh, I don't think I'm a good fit for anyone with a more serious faith. But we're going to meet up on Sunday and, like, chat just to hang out. Welcome to Rose is All Trash, a podcast where we read a critical theory. This episode is for the last week of April. Decolonization is not a metaphor. Our episode theme is on dual Jewish identity and the Jewish diaspora. Our first reading is The Question of Palestine by Edward W. Said, and uh, he discusses the roots of Israeli encroachment on Palestine and sort of the dual identities, both the Arabic Palestinian native people and the Jewish Israeli people. The Jewish inhabitants of Israel and their position towards Palestine puts them in this sort of dual role as both the victim and the aggressor. Jewish people have obviously endured like intense intergenerational trauma and suffering and deserve their own homeland, but that doesn't negate the agency that native Palestinians have over their own land and their own lives. In their attempt to create a homeland and a safe place for their own people, Israel has adopted tactics of their former oppressors from the depictions of Arabic people as evil, lesser, and violent in culture, and their portrayal of Palestine as uninhabited and undeveloped. This draws a parallel to the ways we as individuals use our identities to play these sort of dual roles as victims and aggressors, depending on the situation as at hand, what comes to mind initially as a very sort of wide-ranging similar parallel to that situation is a narrative of white womanhood. Yeah, having read Said, I was really happy to read our next text by Santiago Slobodsky, Decolonial Judaism, Triumphal Failures of Barbaric Thinking. And we're reading the epilogue to this book, which chronicles and analyzes the history of Jewish oppression while actively resisting a traditional and honestly personal inclination to the victim narrative. Um, and in this epilogue, Slavatsky testifies to the very real fear of being publicly Jewish. But as a South American Jew, he has a unique and revealing perspective of how, quote, Jewish victimhood is not exceptional, but should be interpreted through recourse to a common systemic root defined as coloniality. He even briefly considers the idea that Jewish victimhood is actually what pushes certain Jewish individuals to challenge the claim of the state of Israel because they sympathize with Palestinians uh, victimhood as Jewish victims. Reading this sort of reminded me of Janine's language from the last episode. If you haven't listened to it, please go listen to it. It's amazing. Janine did great. But Slotsky might agree with Janine in that there's a cultural amnesia among modern Jewish people that they forget that colonialism throughout the centuries attacked the barbarism of Jews, as Said says, and that claims of their quote-unquote civility were only adopted for use against new barbarian peoples. 
Uh, Slavatsky says that Jewish suffering should be attributed to that generational fear of being labeled a barbarian again, not mis misattributed to fear of other external barbarism, if that makes sense. He says that Jews' role in modern colonialist history really has become clear. Quote, every time my Jewishness is unveiled, this serves to offset my other barbaric characteristics. The border, a space of fear for historically racialized people, becomes a secure passage for many Jews. End quote. And then we also have Our Power to Heal, Tizrai's Firestone and Gloria Steinem in conversation. Firestone and Simon discuss the patriarchy. They begin their discussion in the segment that is listed here. The patriarchy is rooted in this desire to control reproduction. And in order to control reproduction, you inherently have to control women's bodies, loosely described, because women tend to have a, a key important role in reproduction. Not to be turfy, but... And so this is sort of compounded by racism, which is also an attempt to control reproduction in order to perpetuate different races and this hierarchy of races. And this discussion that they're having melds into a discussion around trauma and healing from trauma, both in, in an, like, an immediate personal sense and in an intergenerational sense. Steinman and Firestone discuss how trauma has these really profound, long-lasting effects, often outside the scope of our immediate guess or understanding. But on the flip side, healing from it has, while it is chaotic, has equally profound, wide-reaching impact, not just on yourself, but those in your lives and the generations around you, both forwards and backwards. Our last reading is by Zvi Gittelman, The New Jewish Diaspora, Russian-speaking immigrants in the United States, Israel, and Germany. We're just reading the introduction of this book, Researching Russian-Speaking Jewish Immigrants. Gittleman makes it clear right from the start that identifying with the home country or such expat communities, for example, identifying with Russian-Jewish culture and neighborhoods versus identifying with one's new country, the U.S., Israel, or Germany, doesn't follow a clear pattern. There's no age that you immigrated. There's no style of upbringing. There's no dominant language that will necessarily make your kid want to be more Russian Jewish or more Americanized. And this might be because the few generations of Russian Jews that truly don't have a homeland are most deeply connected by a same cultural language and a greater culture that, while it remains distinct, is now found all over the world. And in fact, Russian Jewish children overwhelmingly live in a completely different part of the world than their Russian parents grew up in. Gittleman notes that before the 1700s, Jewish people did not necessarily call for a homeland, quote, but Zionists repudiated the viability and desirability of the diaspora. They called it galut, or exile, and rejected it contemptuously along with its languages, values, and mores. Only in recent decades has that negation been softened, perhaps because Zionism has emerged triumphant from the veil of ideological movements, end quote. So ultimately, this has resulted in a distinct relationship between the state of Israel and the Jewish individual. For example, I, a Korean person, inherit without necessarily organically forming one, I inherit a relationship that I have to define, that I have to sort of sort out to the country of South Korea and maybe even the country of North Korea, except the difference is that many Jewish people have never been to Israel. They weren't born there. Their parents might not have been born there. And actually they might not even have an ethnic tie to the land there. Although that isn't to say that that cheapens the bond that a Jewish person might feel to the state of Israel, because as Gittleman states at the very beginning, no, nothing about your place of birth or the way you're raised really is predictive of just what type of bond you might feel to this homeland that someone else has designated for you. 
And now we want to just head this off with an apology because we really can't speak from personal experience and we're going to do our best to just stick to the facts and testimonies that we read in these readings. Um, and so we apologize actually if our conversation is a little bit broad uh, and not super specific. I mean, I personally was really interested in the Our Power to Heal, the discussion of intergenerational trauma. Do you want to sort of describe what generational trauma is according to Tirza Firestone and Gloria Steinem? Generational trauma, they mentioned this quite briefly, is this phrase that they use is called like the sort of nefarious quality of secrets is that when we hold these secrets or when we hold these traumas within it, it comes out eventually and it's a phrase I've heard sort of colloquially on the internet is that when you hold your emotions inside of you or like when you bottle it up what that means is that it stays inside and it stays there and in order to like move forward from this is to like release it like release this pressure valve and like process these emotions and so generational trauma is when you've had such a profound traumatic event of any form depending on how you define that trauma and if you're not able to properly address it and reinstate your own agency and start to heal from it, what happens is that those emotions and those secrets that are within you and sort of maybe under the surface have an impact on those around you, like your children and your parents and your siblings. They spoke specifically about the Dutch hunger winters, about during World War II, the Nazis blockaded these Dutch people and like literally didn't allow food to come in in Holland and people were starving. Incidentally, Audrey Hepburn was there at that time, and that had a profound effect on her body, actually. Women who were there in Holland and who were starving during those winters, they who were pregnant, they did a study in the 90s on the grandchildren of these women. And the, the grandchildren of the women, compared to people of a very similar demographic, but whose grandmothers weren't didn't undergo these two years of intense starvation, these grandchildren had a rate of depression and anxiety and like weight issues that was four times that of the average demographic. And it's really insane when you think about it, that something that happened like two generations ago and only for two years had such an intense ripple effect. Yeah, no, that's like a really profound example for sure. I remember sort of learning about it, um, like an AP bio and how experiences do have the power to affect your DNA and um, sort of what is passed down, uh, which is very like anti-Darwinian, but actually biologists are just thinking of it as in addition to Darwinian principles, you know, something that we didn't know about. And it kind of made me think about the episode, The Captive Maternal, where we talked about how like the dynamic of black oppression is mind for episodes and stories and information and science but like we don't actually talk about the black people in the story like this is i mean such an anecdotal example but like why didn't my science teacher just say what the what the whole story was like why did she just like extract the scientific knowledge and then like plop it into our science class you know why didn't she just tell us about the dutch hunger winners um and actually generational trauma is like a concept i'm familiar with um outside of the holocaust because it's actually, I think, invoked in a lot of like progressive Christian churches where they talk about generational curses and how like a household can have a lot of anger in it. They, it's, such a, it's such a sidestep to like 
real scientific principles, right? But they talk about it in the form of curses, which actually is kind of very folksy. And I feel like if it were like um, discussed by like like pagan faiths or like indigenous faiths or something, it wouldn't be as like kooky sounding. It would just be like exotic or whatever, which are both like horrible portrayals of it. But yeah, they'll basically just talk about how like a parent who is really angry or who's like really stressed or something or like doesn't live in love if that makes sense then the child will suffer with it all through their all through as they grow up and their child will suffer through it and i've heard it much more specifically than that like there's a generational curse of men cheating a grandfather cheated on his wife and then his son cheated on his wife and then the kid is like oh my god i'm gonna cheat on my wife <laughs> As silly as that could sound, again, it's just like one sidestep to like, oh, this is nurture in effect, you know? Yeah. Like bad parenting, toxic cycles in effect. Yeah. And we talk about things like, we talk about how people who lived through the Great Depression, like how that forever changed their like right. associations with money. Did you ever read the, the graphic novels? I believe it was called Moz. Uh, this, it's about this man who... He's interviewing his father who survived the Holocaust and his father is giving this oral history of what happened to him and how he went through the Holocaust. And it's interspersed with like, you know, he, his son is like telling the story of like how he's visiting his father now, like, you know, in the modern day. And it's like he and his father, like the Jewish people are depicted as mice and the Germans are cats. His father, like, in between telling these stories, we'll pause to like angrily go get a full refund on like a box of cereal because there was something wrong with it. But like, you know, or like we'll scrimp and like save every last piece of food or like he had this weird thing about the hangers and like which hangers have to be used for different coats or like, you know, these nice wooden hangers, but also having all these wire hangers because he didn't want to spend the money. And this sort of survival mode that his father was living in also, I mean, I read this graphic novel many, many years ago, but there's like sort of this anger that was in his father and this like fear that sort of drove his actions even like years after the fact. Like he never was able to leave that that headspace that he had been in. Yeah, and I, it's not escaping me that it really is this framing of like, oh, it's like, oh, it's just my kooky grandma or my kooky dad who like, went through something horrible and like it's had a lasting impact on him and then the you often the children or the grandchildren who are telling these stories feel this like pain and this connection but we don't make the sort of psychological like therapeutic connection to like okay yeah it's trauma like it's straight up trauma it's not just like oh uh, like a folk thing like oh that happened it's like it really did happen like that's the point you know like, it's more the punchline that, like, oh, isn't it, like, crazy that my grandmother, like, like, will save every plastic bag or, like, will wash out a Ziploc bag to reuse it, you know? Like, oh, haha, isn't that, like, man, they're intense, huh? Not be like, wow, like, how, imagine what they went through to get to the point where, like, they live their life that intensely because, like, they had to at one point. Yeah, I feel like so much stuff about Jewish people are considered the punchline. So I'm thinking of this video essay by The Take on YouTube about the Jewish American princess and how they struggled to sort of reconcile the real relief that Jewish people get out of like sort of stereotypical Jewish portrayals because they are relatable and yet they don't serve as like accurate or full representation because 
complex shows like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel are so popular and so beloved and yet like almost packaged with that belovedness is that like I don't know if I should like this like I don't know if this is anti-semitic you know I remember I was talking about Marvelous okay I know we said that like when we speak about Jewish identity because now they're so Jewish like we don't want to be like oh like my Jewish friend said this because like that could go on a whole tangent but when I first watched Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Maisel, it's, like, funny, it's witty, and I showed it to my friend, who is Jewish, and, like, we watched a couple episodes, and, like, the first thing she said is she was, like, because the husband has, like, this high, like, company, high-paying job or whatever, and the first thing she said is, she's like, yeah, they'd never let a Jewish guy in the 50s have that nice of a job in New York. Um, and this is relatable, honestly, but I think a lot of Jewish people have this sort of immediacy of the memories of suffering or they know someone who have memories of suffering or something like that. Maybe most most Jewish people than not have experienced anti-Jewish discrimination or maybe a lot of them have know somebody who has or something. So it's this like immediacy of it, but it's hard to grasp. Again, like not something I've personally experienced, but something I've seen my Jewish friends experience. It's like there still exists like this immediacy of anti-Semitic, like what I mean stuck in my head once is like I obviously like I knew anti-Semitism was still around and still kicking and you'd hear about like these like hate crimes like someone's car was set on fire or like you know synagogues were like graffitied but my friend Abby our, mut- our mutual friend she has an Instagram account about 10k followers she's fantastic ominous Abby on Instagram go follow her but I remember one time she showed me a message this guy sent her like you know a random DM she gets hate like you know dms on instagram sometimes but he had just out of the blue center something where he was like you're gonna burn in the ovens and she's like yeah like people send me shit like that sometimes like like even in the town we grew up in palo alto like has a sort of relatively larger jewish population and i think it's like honestly anti-semitic that people would always note that and be like oh yeah so like it's kind of stuff about Jewish people or whatever like and then like on top of that in our junior or senior year our school got graffitied with all of this like not just anti-semitic graffiti it was like anti-black as well and stuff but anyone who's anyone who takes something like some sort of discrimination or something like that and is like oh yeah no that died out now like it's almost never the case it's literally (laughs) almost never the case that's like um yeah, a girl I, I knew in high school. I remember having an argument with her in high school because I was like, anti-Semitism still exists. And she was like, no, it doesn't. Like, we won World War II. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, just how, like, racism ended after we won the Civil War. It's gone now. Like, Not her, still in the 50s. <laughs> <laughs> Even in the 50s, like, I've absolutely forgotten the name of the movie, but in my film noir class, we talked about the role film noir played in portraying these social issues and how it actually was a genre that really addressed these harsh realities, whereas other genres wouldn't. Like in a musical, no one's going to talk about anti-Semitism, right? So there's this movie, Crossfire, 1947, which I watched in my film noir class, and but it's about this brutal, or brutal murder of this like Jewish man and how people are investigating the case and they're kind of coming to terms with their own anti-Semitism, with the anti-Semitism built into the system, even though, like, none of them are Jewish, but they're realizing as they investigate this murder, like, how deep it runs. And there's this, like, you know, very rousing, you know, 
as Americans is, you know, we must accept and love one another, which they have like a whole monologue about it. And, you know, they never mention race. Uh, that would be too far. It's really interesting. Like even in, in the 50s, like they knew it was still happening and they knew it was around. And like there is the gentleman's agreement, which was a Gregory Peck movie where he's like a journalist and he changes his name to a stereotypically Jewish name in order to experience what it's like to be Jewish for a little bit. And spoiler alert, it sucks. Again, another side note, Ralph Lauren is Jewish, which I think is very funny because he is the hallmark of like wasp American fashion. Uh, And he changed his name to Lauren to be be read as like less overtly Jewish. What was his last name before? Ralph Lauren, original name. Ralph Lifshitz, yes. But yeah, that's something that's really, really interesting to me, which I think a lot about because Ralph Lauren and his brand has become really integral to like American identity. Like his fashion has really shaped what it's meant to be like a white upper class American. His ads alone like really have been the ultimate visualization of that like identity, that community, that lifestyle. Yeah, but I think it's, again, like that cultural amnesia, this anti-Semitic language, these anti-Semitic sentiments, anti-Semitic motivations, political motivations are super immediate. But at the same time, it is true, just like it is true for the Asian population that a certain segment has really succeeded. And they have embraced and now model these American values of success and like uber success, you know what I mean? And honestly, like the population in itself, Jewish Americans, Asian Americans, we we now represent this, again, I think American value of incredible income inequality. It's always at the expense of a bunch of other people the privileged population claims an identity, a shared identity with. I don't think it's like productive to like frame all Asians, for example, as abject like we talked about in the last episode and so we should also talk about how like like generational trauma I think has a direct link to these specific values of high achievement um either one causing the other or vice versa or both of them like needing each other to exist at least I could speak to like how the value of high achievement has really sort of informed and enabled generational trauma you know Well, I wanted to ask, you know, like, what sort of generational trauma do you think you have racially? Especially since we probably, even though we're different ethnicities, we share a lot of those values since we are from the same, like, socioeconomic background. I mean, I don't know. It feels unfair to call anything I call or I've experienced in, like, racial terms as trauma. That feels, like, inaccurate because I don't think any of my, like, racial identity has, like, caused me trauma like by definition of being white I've been able to avoid racial trauma that's the interesting thing though is that Jewish people are white and they do have intergenerational trauma because of the fact that they're white and Jewish that's like with anti-semitism is is it's such again my perception of anti-semitism from you know those I know who experience it and what I've seen and read is that it's kind of this sort of shape-shifting thing whereas Jewish people are simultaneously like this lesser thing through anti-Semitism, but also this better thing that's controlling and pulling the strings. And like, it's both of these things at the same time, like Jewish people are, according to anti-Semitism, which allows anti-Semitism to persist and always find a way to manifest itself because 
it's like a catch-22 if Jewish people find a way to be like, look, like, we are hard and, like, smart and, like, we've succeeded, so therefore we are not these, like, lesser beings. We are not, like, disgusting and uncivilized. And it's like, oh, now you fall into the trap of, like, you're the elites who control everything. And then that is just another iteration of the anti-Semitism. You know, that draws our attention to sort of, like, the population of Jewish people who aren't high-achieving and who are extremely marginalized. But there's also that that sort of thing of, like, privileged Jewish people not knowing where to put their pain and thus sort of dealing with it in unhealthy or inappropriate ways by centering their pain, uh, as opposed to sort of tackling the issues facing Jewish people as a population. Yeah. It's interesting because like something that's also shared, a value that's also shared between Asian and Jewish cultures in general, like that's really, you know, very nebulous. But there is this sort of like communalism, like a really big sense of family loyalty and of like putting elders first, if that makes sense. And yet in both of them, like this divide between privileged and uh, less privileged people of the same identity is a really persistent problem. I mean, that's comparable to what like I mentioned earlier, like while we were going over the readings is like, it's really similar to like white feminine, like female identity especially in the West, and our vision of ourselves as victims will sort of often, almost often consciously, I think, ignoring the power that we also hold, where it's like undeniable that we are in so many ways victims, and we've been brutalized, and we like don't even have agency over our our most basic like selves, which is our body. And like, that's undeniable. But at the same time, we we've had a like an opportunity to buy into the power structure. It feels kind of like a sellout often, like my like white feminism, because it's like, oh, instead of thinking like, wow, this system oppresses me and oppresses so many others and I could like dismantle it totally. It's just sometimes people just seek to move upwards in the system rather than destroy the system itself. Yeah, and I do think that you're speaking specifically from like, somebody with like family wealth you know because if we think about like poor white women or we we talked about this in the context of like thin women sort of buying into feminine present self-presentation and how they're like rewarded for it and punished otherwise so like let's say fat white women like face something a little different as obvious an opportunity to buy in or like fat asian women or like there's all these degrees I was just thinking also about, like, my own lack of, like, information around anti-Semitism. Because, like, going back to what we were talking about earlier, how I mentioned, like, that girl in high school was, like, anti-Semitism's over. I remember in high school being, like, I know it's not over, but, like, I have no idea, like, where it still is, you know? I was like, yeah, I know it still exists, but, like, I didn't have anything to point to or, like, any, you know, statistics or references and that we do have a pretty large Jewish population in Palo Alto. Um, I learned quite recently, large enough that we have this, like the the string or the wire around our town. That on on Sabbath, it's our whole town is considered like a place you can go to. Oh, it's like that? a thing where like on Sabbath on Saturday. Apparently, I'm very poorly informed. Um, if you're Orthodox Jewish, you're like. You know, a lot of different rules, like on Saturdays from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, 
you're like not supposed to leave your house unless it's to go to temple. But apparently like temple or like the synagogue can designate certain areas as like, I'm sure there's a word for it, but it's like a special place where you're allowed to go there on Sabbath. Um, And they do this by they like run a wire and they make this big continuous loop around like whole chunks of the neighborhood. And then that way you're allowed to walk all through there on on Sabbath and it's like deemed okay. But anyhow, the whole town of Palo Alto has that wire around it. So that way Orthodox Jewish people and devout Jewish people on Sabbath can, can move freely. Anyhow, we have a large Jewish population and I like, I remember watching the movie like as good as it gets. It's got Jack Nicholson in it and his character is like this asshole. And that's like the point of the character. He's like this huge dick and like throughout the movie he learns how to be like less of a dick, which yeah, riveting storyline to watch a man learn how to have basic human empathy. But like there's this one scene or like one of the, the key facets is he has OCD. So he has a routine. It has to be this one way. He goes to a restaurant and he sits at a certain table and it's a specific table, not any other one. He goes to his restaurant, someone else is at his table, and he makes an anti-Semitic comment. And I was watching it with my mom, and I was like, I was like, how did you know to make that comment? Like, these are just strangers. You just guessed that they were Jewish? And my mom's like, well, they look traditionally, like, you know, stereotypically Jewish, you know? And I was like, what the hell does that mean? And I was like, I was like 17. <laughs> and my mom was like, well, you know, they have, like, curly hair, they have, like, you know, strong noses. And I was like, what, like, what does that have to do with anything? Like, blew my mind um and I think that that's embarrassing for me honestly um that I wasn't more aware of anti-semitism and its existence but that's kind of it's not something where people told me about like anti-blackness you know or people told me about like the way it manifests itself and so I was able to like educate myself on like what sort of to look for and like you know be like okay that's racist but no one taught me that about anti-semitism you know I think it's interesting how largely the way we learn about discrimination or about oppressed groups is through people like literally oppressing them. Like we know that the N-word is wrong because somebody said it, you know, but at least in our town, like we basically learned about the Holocaust and we're like, oh, okay, Jewish people, <laughs> they're happening, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's like, I don't know if it's better or worse. I mean, it's obviously better that like Jewish people aren't net, aren't like being bullied at the same rate in our town as they are in other towns or something like that. But you're right, like there's a missing piece. Like we don't need just multiculturalism. We need like inclusivity, and we need like um, not just normalization, but destigmatization. If that makes sense. I saw something about how like no, we don't want to like normalize stuff we want to destigmatize it like we don't need it to be normal we need to not face discrimination for it not being normal yeah um you just like brought up a memory of like how many actually i went to like a lot of not a lot i guess like a handful of shabbat dinners when i was in middle school because my best friend at the time was jewish and so i like went to their like friday night saturday night dinners and stuff i was not all through middle school i was not invited to a single bat or bar mitzvah and it was like really crushing no no Maybe one. I went to two. Zero. I went to two. <laughs> and there was a lot that happened in middle school. It <laughs> was embarrassing. So That's because I wasn't super social. Well, the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which has like a which holds a huge place in my heart because it has some of the most I wouldn't say necessarily it's relatable, 
mental illness scenes, I, I think they are relatable to a lot of people, but more than being relatable, they're very fulfilling. Like it's super fulfilling as a mentally ill person to watch this mentally ill character go through certain things happening in her life. And she is Jewish. She's Rachel Bloom does everything on the show, basically. And she plays the main character. Rachel Bloom herself is Jewish. The character is Jewish. There are multiple references, not just references, but like plot lines about her Jewishness, especially as her mother becomes more of a recurring character. But there's this one specific episode where she goes back to Scarsdale in upstate New York, which is a very Jewish town. She's like really annoyed by having to go to this like Jewish, I don't remember if it's a wedding or a bar mitzvah, but like she has to go see all of her like high school friends who are like a lot of them are Jewish. And, um, I mean, like everyone at this particular event is Jewish and stuff. And she's like so annoyed because all they do is talk about the Holocaust. Everything they talk about is tinged with the suffering. And there's actually, it's a musical show. I feel like I should have brought that up earlier. But there's like a few musical, <laughs> musical like songs per episode. And like one of them is like, and we suffered. So it's like in like that, you know how there's like an oriental musical sound. There's also like a Jewish musical sound. Um, and so like it's in that, it's like in that to very t stereotypical type of sound. And like they go, remember that we suffered. And they like will name random Jewish people and they'll be like, remember that we suffered and stuff. And she's so annoyed by how everything they do as Jewish people is like tinged with the suffering. I'm not really sure where it comes from, whether like Rachel Bloom was trying to show that Jewish people need to stop victimizing themselves or if she was trying to show that her character had trouble reconciling that victimhood narrative, you know? Either way, it felt like someone's frustration just poured out in this musical number, <laughs> you know? That was really, I think, enlightening for me to see. Because again, like there are lots of pieces in that that are relatable, not only as like an oppressed person, but also as an Asian American person specifically, as a woman who is like upper middle class, you know, there's all these gray areas and like we're not really sure what we're supposed to identify with. And again, like after last week's episode, I'm willing that like having to identify myself with something is the problem. This ties into what the, the conversation with Gloria Steinem, the first like couple steps when it comes to like healing from this generational trauma. One of the first things is like just sort of bearing witness, like be it yourself bearing witness to what happened and acknowledging it to yourself that this happened or having others bear witness to it and like sharing your story. And like having them like acknowledge that it happened and it existed and it's real. And then the first step to like healing from it is being able to recover your own, your own agency. And that's kind of like the first step forward into creating this healing from trauma, be it like your own personal trauma or intergenerational trauma. And I feel like that's, that's kind of what's missing is like, how do we assert our own agency in this situation where we're so tied up in what our multifaceted identities are. And like, it feels like I spend so much time like trying to like mentally balance this math equation of like, oh, like I'm a woman, but I'm also white. But like, you know, I have an eating disorder and like tons of mental illness, but also like, you know, I have like class and wealth privilege and like every interaction is like, I'm trying to rapidly do math, like that gift of that woman um, of like all these different identities and like how these power dynamics play out with whoever I'm interacting with even if it's just like myself in the bathroom looking at myself 
this well obviously I'm not saying that people's identities isn't important but it's what what do we need to do so we can start recovering our own agency and like starting to move forward from these traumas rather than just assessing it over and over yeah definitely 100% I think you know I mentioned earlier that like communalism is a huge value in Asian cultures in general and also it seems like in Jewish American culture so where why isn't it functioning properly you know and I think it is because we're all spending our energy trying to balance our identity and be like okay no I'm more privileged than not or I'm less privileged than not and stuff like that instead of being like okay so what's the work that needs to happen you know yeah like if I identify this part of myself that feels pain but maybe isn't like attacked by material lack or like being thieved from if that makes sense then like where can I go to help people who are being thieved because of that same sort of a facet of identity you know yeah I think also like as I say those things I'm always weird I'm like wary of I don't want to sound sort of condescending or dismissive of these traumas because I don't think I am someone who has experienced any great personal trauma or any great intergenerational trauma so like I really can't speak to the depth and the impact of what that like that scale of trauma is like so I don't at all want to sound like I'm being like oh we just need to like move on like obviously not especially with Jewish people like the trauma that they've been through as a collective is like astronomical I like don't pretend that I know that or that I know what to do about that but Right. Even and maybe even especially predating the Holocaust, honestly. Yeah. But this is actually reminding me of that when reading Death and the Maiden or the paper about the Death and the Maiden, where it's this woman who suffered hugely at the hands of a previous government that was now ousted and her husband is working to prosecute that former government. But she's she runs into this guy who directly assaulted her as part of that former administration. And she's like, it doesn't matter if you sue all of these people and put them to jail or even send them to death, like it won't fix what's inside of me, you know? There is that. (laughs) It it makes me feel like, I don't know how or like why even policy is supposed to like help people get through pain. I guess there are several different outlets like organizations that get grants from the government to do their sort of healing work but yeah it's hard to look for everything in the same place it's hard because like this trauma healing is obviously individual to each and every person and everyone has to learn how to take their own agency back and like figure out what they need to do and start doing what they need to do for their own healing, for the healing of others around them. But that's such a individualized personal experience. And for some people, it's not like possible given like the scope of what's happened. I feel like up until now, our discussion has really been informed by the experience of Ashkenazi Jews and um, like white Jews. But the really fun thing, I keep using like adjectives like fun and cool for because I don't want to use the adjective interesting, but fun and cool are arguably worse. 
like I was going to say the really interesting thing about Santiago Slavodsky's text, but I instead was like the really fun thing about what he wrote is that um, he is a brown South American Jew. He tells this really, again, like I want to say interesting, but am I going to say fun? Am I going to say cool? I need to find a better adjective. Um, this this story of going through customs to the U.S. So he's not a U.S. citizen, but he's going into customs in the U.S. because he's going to go study or do research at University of North Carolina. And as he's walking away, the customs person says, go devils. Or he hears it as go devil. And he's like, oh my God, is he referring to like how Jewish people and were like equated with devilry and like they were like made barbarian and like this they were they were like thought of as this red devil and stuff in like the 1400s or something and then he gets to UNC and he and his he tells his his research partner about this story and she's like oh that's because the UNC mascot is the blue devils and he was like oh, oh okay and then she actually says to him yeah I know that like Jewish people like love to talk about their trauma, so it makes sense that you'd be paranoid about it. But yeah, it's just because he recognizes blue devils. And so he grapples with that about how like, yes, he will forever have this fear about being branded as the red devil, but it's really this like association with the blue devils where he has access to these like institutions and to higher education and to upward mobility because non-Jewish white people let him in. You know, he has this like blue devil access, even though inside he's the red devil. <laughs> um, I don't know if like this is rude. I don't know. Like maybe all of this was slurs, but yeah. <laughs> That's like, how did he do his research partner? How was she like, oh, like, don't worry. It wasn't a microaggression, but like, I'm going to do a full on aggression. <laughs> like, no, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and she, but she, at the, in the same breath, she's like, yeah, I know you guys love to talk about your suffering, so I get why you thought that, and it's okay. <laughs> you know? Like, what? <laughs> but there's, like, genuine compassion in there, I guess. It's just also genuine anti-Semitism. <laughs> I shouldn't be, like, going up to, the, like, a Black person and be like, I know you guys love to talk about racism. Like, what? Like, damn. No, I feel like that happens a lot in classrooms where, like, some white person will bring up like race and stuff and she'll look like directly at the black person and be like oh like this is for you that kind of thing oh god cringe because i'm sure i've done that without realizing yeah i yeah i don't know you know what a fun cool interesting story <laughs> all of those things it was fun it was cool it was interesting there's like more we could say about victim narratives and like how sort of appealing to these traditional American values. Um, I'm thinking specifically of gender norms, you know, like in Asian American uh, households, in I believe Jewish American communities, like there are these gender norms paired with this high achievement for every individual and stuff. So like true liberation can't be reached. And it's more just like trying to fulfill like every new American um, standard. Um, you know which Jewish character we completely missed? It's Rachel from Mad Men. Rachel Menken. Oh my god, yes. From the department store? Oh, yeah. Yeah, every analysis of her is like, yeah, Dawn related to her because they both felt like outsiders. Him as a class outsider and her as like a Jewish outsider, I guess. Yeah, 
She was a pretty good character. I think she was a great character. She wore some of the flashiest outfits on the show. And I think, like, that was on purpose. <laughs> Again, this dynamic of, like, Jewish Americans being posed as, like, nouveau riche, sort of, like, white, almost, like, white trash type of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They're, like, painted that way. It's, like... Yeah, and at the same time, um, they're also blamed for being incredibly waspy, like, holed up in upstate New York, like, not marrying outside of that community type of thing. Rachel Mencken does eventually marry a, I think, Harry Katz consolidates her wealth. Katz delicatessen? I don't, I don't know if it's that Katz, but maybe. <laughs> I mean, didn't you say earlier, like, um, Catch-22? Yeah, it is. Hi, this has been Rose's All Trash. I'm Catherine. I'm Ryan. This has been the final week of April discussing Jewish identity in diaspora. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please follow us wherever you get your podcast, Rose's All Trash. And we're also on Instagram as well as our personal Instagrams at rrryen and at Catherine.shark. Thanks for listening. Bye.